The Trek Files, Season 6, Episode 23, Plato's Stepchildren Score, September 27, 1968. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek history buffs. Um, sure, you canonistas too, I say that lovingly. <laughs> all you tech heads, especially if your tech leans to the musical variety, because I'm talking to all Trekophiles this week, spelled with an F, when I am so thrilled to welcome back a guest we had on recently. Uh, it's <laughs> I just I'm just giddy here because it's exciting to talk about a subject we don't get to talk about much here on the Trek Files. So look, if you want to see why I'm so excited, go check out our document this week, as always, right there on our Facebook page. Hey, we're the only podcast that gives you paper, too. Okay? <laughs> but give that a look. It will enhance your listening pleasure. Check that out. But meanwhile, hang on. I'll be right back with today's guest. Here, though, is a sample of one of those documents. I hope you understand that contrary to writers, composers are very eager to do a show like Star Trek. It gives them a chance to be almost totally creative in a medium which seldom affords that opportunity. And the music they turn out generally reflects this feeling. It seems that composers don't mind working hard when they have a chance to do something that has some meaning and content. Maybe what we ought to do is find composers who are members of the Writers Guild of America and hire them to both write the teleplay and then score the episode. Well, yes, uh, Chuckophiles, once again, with the inimitable wording <laughs> and letter stylings, uh, the memo maestro here, Bob Justman, uh, from the original series, going into third season, actually partly into third season, talking about otherwise Plato's stepchildren, and he's writing to Eddie Milkus, who um, began uh, very humbly as the post-producer, although they didn't have, to, they didn't have budget to, to pay a lot of producers, so he was an assistant to the producers for post-production supervising. They're talking, wound up doing little things, being executive producer on some little things you may have heard of, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, you know, that kind of thing. But they're just in-house, they're trying to pick a composer for... Um, for the show they hadn't intended to write new score for. So we, sadly, uh, we have a lot of good material from all the composers from the original series. We have one that's available to talk to us today, though, and that's why I am so glad to talk about Star Trek and its music background uh, and the whole process and the rat race of 60s TV composing with our now good friend of the show, uh, Gerald Freed, who insists we call him Jerry. Jerry, it's so great to have you back with us. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, you, we, we talked about uh, Bob Justman's thank you letters to you and correspondence and setup for a show. Um, here, this isn't exactly what I love about this is they're talking in house, Bob and Eddie, and um, but they're not only talking about uh, what they have to deal with on their end of planning, and how they're about to bust a budget and, and pay for some an original score for Plato's stepchildren, uh, but they also kind of run through the stall here, the stable of uh, some of the other composers, and I didn't know if uh, you were colleagues now. 
oddly enough, they don't mention you. So I'm just going to assume, as much as they loved your work, and you did five episodes, I'm going to assume that uh, you were busy at the time and you were out of the loop and couldn't be talking. But uh, what do, you read this, you think you see those names of some of your colleagues, you you hear Bob Justman talking here. What what comes to mind as you just just glance over this this uh, little letter memo? Well, uh, you mentioned that uh, I, I wasn't called, and uh, I was worried about that. Why didn't they call me? I don't remember my situation. I may have been busy or contractually unable to do it. But uh, well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That you were busy because otherwise they loved your work. So that had to be that. Um, well, who knows who I offended inadvertently? Oh, I can't. Yeah, I can't see that. But I mean, does this I, does this call to my? I don't know if it's instructive. Did you know this is the way producers talked about composers? And um, you know, did you, you did you know any of the gentlemen that were were talking that are mentioned here? They're all Star Trek fans. Know them for their music. Did you know any of them um, as colleagues? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I knew Alexander Courage. I knew Lalo Schifrin very well. Elmer, I knew very well. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, sort of well. Yeah, we could show up at meetings and things like that. At the union meetings? I don't know. So being a composer, you're a music guy. And this is all men here, although we've had women, you know, composing too. But and it was more of a guy's game back at that time, rightly and wrongly. Were you aware? I mean, did you did you ever do any calling on your own to say, "Hey, guys, I haven't heard from you," or did you sit home and wait for the phone to ring? How did that work? Did, were you privy to some of the things, or did you they call you say, "Hey, here's the job, here's the episode, here's the tone," and you went and did it and came in and and then led the score, usually the scoring session, right? Well, they got these things called agents. And he mm-hmm. he did the running around work for me, and by that time I was getting a reputation, and uh, the Star Trek thing didn't hurt me a bit. Uh, so the work sort of came to me and to my agent. So except at the beginning when I was scramble, uh, like uh, mm-hmm. any hungry composer, uh, things got easy once I got you know, in the groove of things, and. Uh, Star Trek was very much a thing. Yeah, well, maybe not quite up to the groove of 45 Man From U.N.C.L.E. episodes and 39 Gilligan Islands and, and uh, <laughs> much less six. But, you know, Mission Impossible, I think you did a Mannix, too. So you were certainly known to the Desilu people, you know, or, or Paramount after they bought Desilu. Um, so I'm just looking at some of these names here, and it's not even all the composers. So George uh, George Dooning uh, had six episodes, Metamorphosis, Return to Tomorrow, Patterns of Force, and The Children Shall Lead, Is There a Truth, No Beauty, and The Empath. He looks like he's leaning toward a lot of the romantics. Saul Kaplan, very famously, The Doomsday Machine. I still think... Uh, I still think he was ripped. John, John Williams ripped him off for Jaws, uh, and The Enemy Within early. Fred Steiner, I guess, is the king here. He had ten... Uh, plus, he did a Next Generation episode, Code of Honor, but we won't blame that on him. But he did Cor- he did a lot out of the gate. Corbinite Maneuver, Muds Women, Charlie X, Balance of Terror, including the Romulan theme that they reuse in the Picard series. Um, what Are Little Girls Made Of? And then Who Mourns for Adonis? Uh, Mirror, Mirror, and by any other name, and Alana Troyes and Spock's Brain. So he had 10. Uh, Sandy Metlosky that they're talking about hiring here wound up with just one for iMud. And then Alexander Courage, um, or Sandy Courage, maybe you knew him that well, 
uh, of course, the main theme for Star Trek, and then The Cage, Where No Man, Naked Time, The Man Trap, right out of the gate early, and then Enterprise Incident, and he wound up getting, after all this debate here, he wound up getting the nod for Plato's stepchildren. So I guess maybe that was about scheduling also here. So just for our listeners, just all these names that we're running through here. So were you... Were you um, familiar with their work did you guys you other than the union meetings <laughs> i'm kidding um did you have any any uh collaborations or run-ins or get to know anybody else or think when you'd see somebody else's name on something did you say oh i should have got that or oh good for him he he he's good at that how was the community uh there was a sense of community there also was as you were hinting in your uh word samples here there was an envy oh gee I should have done that oh, why the hell didn't they call me there was always that element but uh, those were a bunch of good guys and we got pretty friendly in fact Fred Steiner was the guy who suggested that I move to Santa Fe it's a great great place to retire and I did so and we became very good friends uh, oh well, um, excellent yeah he's like I said he had the most uh, and I you know all of these gentlemen like you, had a huge career. I mean, they didn't just <laughs> raise their kids on Star Trek. They all had great, uh, uh, great careers. Can you can you share with us a little bit, uh, you know, about Star Trek? What was what was the standard like once you were hired for show? And like we've seen, uh, they 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 hire you for a certain thing, and you get a script. What's the timeline like? And I mean, I know how it was in the '60s versus later. But on and on Star Trek, what was how long did you have to compose an, an episode? How many minutes was it? And then, you know, what was your time frame? How much time pressure were you under? Uh, very that much. Uh, the, the the worst thing I had to do is I had to write a full uh, hours a show that took an hour in in five days, and that was rough. Oh, but uh, was that a Star Trek or was that one of your other series? I'm not sure. Now, Star Trek generally treated me fairly. They gave me enough time. You know, Bob Justman was a, a thinking kind of guy. I don't even remember what I was, was pushed on. Or maybe I know Gilligan's Island. Well, actually, that show you could actually do in two days. Uh, kind of. Are you, are you talking about the fact that it was only a half hour, or are you talking about the day that, that it might not be the deepest of uh, episodes? Well, the kind of music was is it had you, know, you can't probe into the depths. Gilligan's Island was strictly a kid's laugh show, so that made it easier in a sense. You know, almost like the first idea you get in your head will probably work. Mm-hmm. Did you was that just paying the? I mean, is that how you saw Gilligan's Island and uh, sitcoms that they were just paying the bills and that you kind of lived to put? If you're going to put your heart and time into something, it was. Obviously, the one hours, but then the shows like Star Trek. Was it really that kind of hierarchy? Uh, I'm not phoning it in. I would never accuse any professional of phoning anything in. But was there that kind of a... You couldn't help but have that kind of attitude, right? Um, yeah, well, I didn't mean it to sound like that. Uh, I certainly was respectful of Gilligan's Island. Sherwood Schwartz was a bright, talented man who knew what he was doing. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it was fun. It, and it was mostly outdoors and kind of a healthy show, as well as feeding to uh, you know, children's fantasies. So I enjoyed that, and I, I worked as hard on it. But sometimes, you know, you don't have to develop complex themes. In fact, you shouldn't with that kind of a show. 
So uh, mm-hmm. I don't mean to, to put it down by saying uh, that uh, it didn't require as m- much meditating as, uh, say, Star Trek. But just you know, to some extent, that's true. Well, that's a great. Actually, that's a great relief because if you're going to put your heart and mind into anything, I would hope it would be <laughs> the Star Treks of the world and some of these other one-hour shows. Well, um, just about more than any of them, uh, they seem to combine adventure out of space with serious personal, uh, you know, st- stories that people cared about, disguised as out of space stuff which I thought was clever of them. Yeah, and you only... I guess Star Trek was using several composers. That was their attitude, I guess, with, say, Man from Uncle. They were using you a lot. You know, different shows have... You know, they do that with uh, directors, maybe, or writers, even, that they get into a groove. Some shows want to have a diversity of, of voices and minds, and some like getting into two or three, you know, regular folks. Um and obviously, Star Trek was spreading it around, spreading the work around. Were, was there ever a Star Trek, or was there ever another show that just generally that you remember? Did you take everything that you got offered? Did you ever have conflicts in time and say, "Sorry, sorry, fellas, I can't, I can't do that. I'm already busy with." I mean, did that happen often, or, uh, or how was how did that work? I wouldn't say often. I would say occasionally. And uh, you, know, you have to make a decision. Uh, yeah. And Star Trek was, was always my preference, as I keep saying, that combination of thoughtful drama and out-of-space uh, fun uh, was unbeatable. Well, you did a couple of Lost in Spaces. I guess I'm thinking that you didn't quite find that on Lost in Space. No. <laughs> that was almost a, a spoof of these serious out-of-space movies. But... but but that, were, that was a good show, as I remember. It, it almost sounds like you have more respect for Gilligan's Island than you do for Lost in Space. It's, it's something to work for. <laughs> I think I'm going to be sorry that I got into this end of the conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't make, I, yeah, I, well, I mean, it's, when you have a huge career that you've had and some of these other gentlemen have had, I mean, there are, it's like, start, look at a season of any Star Trek. They're not all winners. There are some clinkers in the bunch, and, you know, the writers and creatives will, will admit to that. But I, it's just, I just am saying, pointing this out to show what a diverse career you had. And I'm just curious that, like I think you said, when, when a Star Trek came down the road, even though you did more episodes for other series, when a Star Trek came down the road, you, you were happy to do it and jumped on it. And, and it was a diversity of tones, too. Am I, am I reading that right? Of whose talents? You said it's a diversity of talents. Reading the people who acted in it, I'm not sure I'm... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm saying Star Trek is obviously diversity of tones. Oh, you said tones. I thought you said talents. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you had you had the fantasy shows, you had the harder drama, you had the ro- romantic moments. I don't know. I just I didn't know how you reacted. Getting back to Bob's note here, he's going down the the uh, he's they're naming all the composers that they might contact, and he's talking about everybody. You know, he's talking about their pluses and minuses, their attributes, and I, I guess you have to think as a professional. That's the way that your bosses <laughs> are going to talk about you, but did, I didn't know if any of that uh, brought up anything here for you reading over it. Well, no, because I didn't know about their conversations. I just knew they called me or they didn't. But uh, I don't say that about uh, 
much work than that combination of thoughtful uh, script writing in, in a TV series. I think Star Trek sort of leads the field in that. Well, here's another thing. Musically, now as a composer, just as part of the job, you had to score. Did you score the um, like all the arrangements? Or did you indicate that to another arranger that they had on staff or that you used? I grew up as an orchestral musician, so I don't use orchestrators. To me, that's part of composing. I wouldn't dream of fielding the, you know, orchestrating out to somebody else. So except one or two times when I was in a ridiculous time bind, I would get Al Sendry to come in to help me. But most of the time I, I did, I, I think in terms of orchestration, I don't work from a sketch, I work from the final score. So the whole orchestra is sort of laid out in front of me on the desk just to make sure that I think orchestrally, because that's such an important part of you know, composing it, you probably figured. Right, and then, you le- and then you led the scoring session, right? Conducted it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, see, here in this letter, Bob says that they have an orchestra of 16 to 18, well, men, because everything was just, everything was men in those days, just casual writing. Was Star Trek, how was Star Trek musically? Was it bigger? Was it a bigger orchestra than you did on other one-hour dramas? Was it about the same? What, what did they, what was different about Star Trek, if anything? I think Star Trek was one of the series that they drew their statistics from, like 18 or 19 men. That rings a bell. I think that's what we had to work. And you could get a pretty big sound you know, in a studio circumstance with uh, 19 men. Yeah. Well, Star Trek has such a legacy for, especially the original series, has such a legacy with its music and soundtrack, uh, thanks in part to people like you. And uh, I, I think it was always praised for doing, maybe doing a little more than your typical one hour of the week. Uh, much less your Gilligan's Islands, even. <laughs> well, listen, Jerry, I, 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 this has been, again, such a pleasure to, to have a conversation here with you. I hope, I hope it was a little fun to look into the mind of the, of your, of the guys who were hiring you back in the day here with this, uh, with this letter. Do you, do you, just as a last comment here, did you see Bob's motion here at the bottom that maybe they should find writers from the Writers Guild who can also score episodes? Yeah. Do you know anyone like that? I saw that, and it's sort of a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a compliment to all the great composers that they that they had that we enjoy today, whose themes, <clears throat> like a Muck Times fight theme, are just going to be. I I just think they're going to be, um, you know, cosmically endless. They're going to be with us forever and enjoyed for generations. Here's the trite question, Jerry. Again, how does that make you feel to know that's what's going to happen with something you created? Very good. Uh, because uh, my body will die, but uh, the music apparently, some of it won't. And that's a good feeling. Uh, Well, listen, again, Jerry, thank you so much for all the years of enjoyment, much less joining us here for another episode of The Trek Files. It's been such a such a great pleasure and a lot of fun to talk with you today. Yeah, I've been loving this. Brought back good memories, and it's just kind of fun to reminisce like this. So thank you, guys. Well, thank you. Thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek in Portal 47. Yes, that's me at larrynemachek.com. Trek well, everybody.
This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.